Hey, I'm Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm broadcasting to you or podcasting to you from my home in Toronto. I hope you're staying safe. I hope everything's okay where you are. Thanks for all your nice comments on the Alison Brown interview. It was a real joy to sit down and talk to her and get her story in her own words. And that's sort of where we're going to go today with the story of Jesse McReynolds. He's Jesse McReynolds of Jim and Jesse and the Virginia Boys. And this is a band in bluegrass music that is considered to be formative, right? When you ask someone who are the founding bands of bluegrass, you get Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys, uh, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, Don Reno and Red Smiley, and Jim and Jesse. With all respect, it's always and Jim and Jesse. And what that means is when time came to do some research for this, there wasn't a whole lot to have access to. I remember going over to, and I've said this name a whole lot on the show, but Neil Rosenberg, who's sort of my you know mentor, patron saint of bluegrass music in St. John's, great bluegrass historian. Uh, if you haven't read his book, Bluegrass of History, go check that out. Uh, but I sat down with him. I said, can you just give me anything on Jim and Jesse? And he kind of went through a couple of box sets and a, and a book he had, and we photocopied it, but there wasn't a whole lot. And to me, that was exciting. It was exciting to get to put this guy's story out there for you to hear as it's incredibly important in the formation of bluegrass music, but is not often told. So I went to Gallatin, Tennessee. I went to a beautiful estate. I was welcomed in by a guy named Mike Scott, a great banjo player. He gave us coffee. He gave us a room. And I had a bit of an audience for this one. This was fun. So Karina Rose Logston and Jeremy Stevens were there. They're playing Jesse's band. Uh, and I got to hang out with them a little bit. And I brought my buddy with me, uh, Tristan Scroggins, who is a incredible mandolin player. Uh, you might know him from his dad's band, Jeff Scroggins in Colorado, uh, now kind of tours around and plays a lot of freelance mandolin. Really good friend of mine, really important to the development of this podcast. But Tristan plays Jesse McReynolds style mandolin. So I was really, really happy to uh, be able to pair the two of them up. And you'll hear me reference Tristan one or two times in this interview. And at the end, I'll tell you a little bit about how you can see the two of them playing together. But in the meantime, uh, this is me sitting down with a, a cup of coffee and a saucer like I'm the queen of England, sitting down and talking to Jesse McReynolds. Take a listen. Can we, can we can we go back to like the really beginning because I you know like I'm from Canada I feel like my whole world is so different than the world that you came up with mm -hmm. and I also feel like the world I grew up in like the 80s is so different than yeah. the world you came up with oh yeah so it was it was, it was Carfax right near Coburn yeah. yeah what's what's what was that community like growing community, up it's just a community we had four or five houses there and at a train station that that's where the name came from Carfax they used to load a lot of, load a lot of coal out of the local coal mines there. That's the first job I ever had was was uh, going down them metal coal cars and busting them coal. How old were you? I was uh, about 16. Right, right. Yeah, or four, 14 I think it was. Yeah, that's when I had a I had an accident in a car wreck and uh, like I lost my left foot. Yeah, and, I, heard, I heard about that. Was, and, uh, what, what happened in that car wreck? Well, this... It, it turned over and demolished the car, and uh, I, uh, everybody seemed to be all right. So I got out and started to walk and found out that my left foot was, was off. It was, it was out this way. Oh, man. In fact, they were going to cut it off back then. And uh, first thing they'd done, they, they had they just come out with penicillin. And uh, they asked my mother and dad that they, they didn't want to try Try the penicillin rather than cut the foot off. So they tried it, and I still got it. <laughs> I got, it came through thanks, thanks to penicillin that I got a left foot. <laughs> I love I love how new penicillin was back then. Yeah. 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 Do you have any Do you have any problems with the with the left foot since then? Yeah, it's just it's just a little stiff. Right. But I I went went through the army and I tried to complain a little bit. Within the army, that didn't that didn't work. <laughs> so I, I stayed 12 months in Korea, and uh, I, I went to a doctor over there, and they saw my profile on my papers, and he said, "What are you doing in Korea with an L3 profile? What's that meant?" It was I couldn't do no strenuous work, you know, on my, with my left foot, and. I said, now you tell me. <laughs> I tried over there. There was no, no getting out of it. I, I just forgot it and 
and done my job. And I, I can't. Like, I'm dying to talk about that. Like, I didn't know this until I was reading because I've been a fan of your music and yours and Jim's music for a really long time. But I didn't know that your grandfather was in the Bristol Sessions. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. Charles Char- mm-hmm. Charles McReynolds. Did you know that when you were a kid that your 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 grandfather was in sort of the big bang of, of country music? No, not not really. I knew he played. I, I would go to his house and listen to him play some, but uh, I didn't know he'd ever ever done anything. He never bragged about it or anything. So. Uh, just, nobody ever talked about it. The Bristol Sessions was something that uh, happened before the Carter family started, and there wasn't much talk about it back when I was young. Yeah. Did you guys, did you come from a musical family? Did you guys play a lot of music together? We just played at home. Yeah. So, yeah. And go out and, we instead of going inside the church, we'd go outside the church and disturb it, <laughs> doing our playing. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said, why don't y'all go inside and sing? I said, I'd rather, I think we'd rather play out here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were pretty much a rebel bunch, I guess you might say. We'd, we'd just go out and take our instruments and go, go up and down the road and sing to whoever we come by, you know. What did your parents do? He worked in the coal mines right. and, uh, and a farmer. Right. Did he play any music? He played fiddle a little bit, yeah. Right. And banjo and nobody nobody really uh tried to feature their their playing that much in my family because my mother played guitar a little bit but she never pursued it or anything and so she she bought me my first guitar from Sears Roebuck and the only thing she knew was just show me some chords on it, you know. Right. And that's where I started it. And was Jim playing a lot at this point in your life? He, he, how much older was no, he than Jim, you? Jim didn't play very much until he got out of the Army. So he went over when you were you were a kid, right? You were... How much older is he than you? Uh, two years. Two years older than yeah. you. So when did you, uh, when did you start playing the mandolin? Well, after I had the car wreck, I just, I was just, I was out of doing anything really for about two years there with my my left foot. So I just played music and I, I tra- tried to play fiddle. That's when I started trying to play fiddle and the mandolin and we had a guitar. So I just tried to do all of it, you know, a little bit. Jim was in the Army and I played some with my brother-in-law. They, they opened up a radio station in Norton, Virginia, near my home. And uh, he got a band together and and I was part of it. And we went up there and played for the open of the radio station where I first met, first met uh, Carter Stanley and uh, Kenny Baker. Kenny Baker was 14 years old then. And I said, I never heard a fiddle played like this. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was really doing it good then. Right, because Coburn, you, you guys were in Carfax. That wasn't too far away from where the Stanley brothers were, right? No. It's about uh, eight or ten miles. Right. So, did you know about did you know about them that they were doing they were playing bluegrass music? They were playing music. No, no, they were just starting out. Carter was with uh, Roy Sykes, who I started out with, and uh, and Ralph was in the army. He got out of the army the same time Jim did, nineteen forty seven. Right. And uh, and then they started the Stanley Brothers, and we started Jim and Jesse. In fact, I was I was offered a job to play fiddle with the Stanley Brothers when they first made their first band. And uh, I said, well, I would like to do it, but I, me and Jim, was gonna, we started our, going to start our own group. So we start, started at the same time. Who asked you to join the Stanley Brothers? Carter did? Yeah, him and uh, a guy that was working with them. He owned a store. And in fact, I worked for him too and his son while Jim was in the Army. So Jim gets back from the army and he says what? He says, you know, brother, me and you should should start a band together. Well, he he sort of let me start this thing because I I asked him. He was a truck driver before he went in the army, and uh, I asked him. I said, do you want to drive a truck or play music? So that's what started it all. So 
Did you you wanted to be a, a musician? You wanted oh, yeah, to be that's all I wanted to be. Why did why do you think that was? Like why do you think you wanted to be a musician? Because I I just went to a lot of shows and like the uh, the Carter family and Bill Monroe and Charlie Monroe, they both played in that area. Uh, and I went to a lot of their tent shows and everything, and that's all I wanted to do. I said, well, I, when I was going to school, I dropped, I dropped everything I was plan, planning on doing, if I was planning, and uh, I said, I don't think education is that necessary for a musician. You're going to be a musician. <laughs> so that's what I thought about. I, I thought about most of my life that way, that... Uh, you don't have to uh, know all that stuff to be a musician, you know. Yes. So I concentrated on uh, mandolin playing and fiddle playing. I wanted to be a fiddle player, really, but uh, when I I missed the uh, Stanley Brothers uh, reunion, it wouldn't it probably wouldn't work out anyway because I wasn't that good a fiddle player. Right. So they hired uh, Leslie Keith. So 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 Jim comes back from the war. You guys start a band together. Yeah. I mean, this was before. We called it bluegrass. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, M- Monroe had played the Opry. Mm-hmm. You know, Earl Scruggs and, and Lester Flatt had done that thing with Bill Monroe. You know, that band had been formed. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't called bluegrass yet. No. Did you guys know you were you wanted to sound like that? Did you know you wanted yeah, to sound like we, Monroe? That's what we were doing. We were doing most most of their songs. I hate to see that sunset glow just for the cause you ought to know. went to Renfro Valley. Me and Jim, we, we just tried to get a job anywhere we could. And we went to Renfro Valley and auditioned for John Lair. First thing he said, uh, after you heard her audition, he said, you boys uh, do a lot of the Monroe Brothers stuff, don't you? Because we done a couple of their songs. And, and we found out later that John Lair didn't like Bill Moreau and Lester Flatt. <laughs> So that that killed that deal. <laughs> so that was our our, uh, our trip to uh, Renfro Valley. We finally started our own group in Norton, Virginia, on the radio station. And who did you hire for that first group? Do you remember? We had me and Jim and uh, Jimmy Farmer and Jay Hughes on bass. We had a fiddle player and bass is all we had, and Jim on the guitar. No, but no banjo player yet. No. No, right. So then you start playing. You start playing like what was the what was the model here? Did you want to play radio stations? Did you want to make records? What was the? Well, we were just trying to trying to get uh, get on the radio and publicity was the thing that we was we was fishing for. He's get getting on the radio show and uh, building up our popularity, and we go out and play local schoolhouses and things. In fact. We'd take our whole band out to book a show <laughs> back then. What do you mean? Well, we'd, we'd go to all the coal mining towns around where we lived. Not every coal mining town had a theater where they, they'd show movies, and, and we would uh, book the theater for 50% of what they took in, and they'd show a movie, and then we'd play a show. Do you remember, what, what do you remember like stories-wise from that era of touring, right? Because it seems so far away from me, man. Like it seems like, you know, in this era of, you know, people yeah, driving it, around in big buses. It, it was all, uh, go out and get it. It's that out there, but you've got to go find it. we go out back in on the back roads there and uh, find schoolhouses where there wasn't no electricity. We'd have to uh, park our car beside the schoolhouse and... Uh, run a cable in in through the window of the uh, schoolhouse to have electricity to the stage to run the sound system and we had one speaker uh, we we actually carried on top of the car to ballyhoo uh, that we got a show coming and all that you know we'd just go out and hunt these schoolhouses we know didn't know where they were right and uh, we had a guy the boy played fiddle his daddy run a radio shop, and he built us a sound system that we could use on the car, or we could use it 
in the schoolhouse on the electricity thing. And, uh, and that's what we went used for a sound system. But you'd take it off the top of the car and take it in and lay it on the stage. One microphone and one, phone, one horn. And uh, that was our sound system. Uh, things have changed a little bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 then you go and look, look at, the, at the Grateful Dead system. We got to play on that one time, and that was a thrill. <laughs> there is a road, no simple highway, between the dawn and the dark of night. They had the big things hanging down from there, and the big, uh, oh, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. the big wall of sound behind them, right? Yeah, yeah it was it was a challenge to be on something like that, really. When did you play with the Grateful Dead system? It was in uh, in the '60s, late '60s. I mean. We played in um, in Kansas somewhere. I can't remember. It was out in the desert, some way out in the country, where they built they built a stage and everything, and and put their big sound system up, and we played there on one of Thursday or Friday, and they they played on Saturday or Sunday one. But back then, I didn't know who the Grateful Dead was, and, and they didn't care, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but they liked you, man. Jerry oh, yeah. Jerry really liked out, you. We found out 20 years later that Jerry Garcia used to come to our shows all the time, and he was too bashful to come up and speak to us even. Yeah, but uh, that must have been a trip for you to be on stage with all these kind of hippies. Out in the crowd, right? Oh yeah, we we played played a few few uh, shows. I I got a feeling that Garcia was in the crowd that we played in San Francisco one time, or just north of San Francisco. They had uh, John Hartford and Vassar Clemens, and uh, I'm sure Jerry was probably there because it's close to where he lived. And uh, that before the Grateful Dead was was formed, I guess. So I want to go back even a little bit further. When does, you know, for, for people who are listening to this, you became really well known for your style of mandolin playing, which still not a lot of people play like you. I mean, kind of the, one of the only other people I know who plays in your style of, of playing is he's here in the room with it, is Tristan. When did you come up with the idea of cross-picking the mandolin? When Earl, I heard Earl Scurlock's playing with Bill Monroe. Right. I thought, well, this is, this is something different. And uh, I just wanted how that would work to play mandolin like Earl plays banjo. So I didn't know he was using finger picks or what. I just heard it. And, and uh, I just started working on the cross picking thing. It just came to me. Well, actually, the guy we was working with, Hope Jenkins, was a banjo player, but he could only play the backwards row. And that's where I learned the, the role I use was uh, from Hope Jenkins because he couldn't play Earl Scruggs' forward role on the banjo. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he come to, our, to the studio one time with us, and he said, I found out what's wrong with my playing. He said he had took the second string on the banjo and the first string and swatched places with him. So it sounded like he was playing forward by, by using the backward role. <laughs> and it worked okay, but... When you try to use his left hand, yeah. <laughs> that's where he had his problem. It'd work. It'd work open, right? <laughs> <laughs> work. But but he he played. We was on a radio show in Versailles, Kentucky, and I think he played one show, one radio show with us with his banjo tune that way. But he he just couldn't find the chords up there. On, on the other end. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised, man. The fifth yeah. string was in the but middle of the But he had the forward roll. It sounded like this like Earl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember the first tune you picked when you were trying to figure out how to cross pick? Uh, I used to pick uh, On the Banks of the Ohio. Miles from Louisville, I think it was, something like that. I just picked some songs on there. First time I went on stage, me and Jim went on with uh, the guy I used to play with, named Roy Sachs, and um, we did uh, We'll Meet Again, Sweetheart, I think it was. Something Lester and Earl had done. And uh, I played that the role to kick it off and everything, and I thought, well, I wonder what this is going to do. Yeah. And the response was that 
you sound just like Bill Monroe. That was the that was all the big all comment I got about you. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't say anything, but I said, well, if I played like Bill Monroe, what did Earl Scruggs do? You know, that's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, to me, it doesn't. I mean, to me, it sounds completely different than what, and it is. It was completely yeah. different than what Mon- Monroe was doing then. You know. Oh yeah. And. Did he did he hear you do it? Did he ever talk to you about the cross? Oh yeah, picking? yeah. He he talked to me about something. He just said, "Well, Bill was man of very few words. He just said he enjoyed the way I was playing. That's about all he'd say." Right. And if uh, I played rawhide with him one time on a workshop, and when I got through, Bill, he just all he said was, "You can have it." <laughs> <laughs> he was a man of very few words. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I know back then, like, you know, Monroe was, was jealous of, well, I don't know if I'm going to use the word jealous, but when Flatten Scruggs started, he was a little upset because it was competition, you know? Oh, yeah. And when the Stanley <laughs> Brothers started, at first he, was, he felt the same way. He said, why yeah. these people are trying to steal my style? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the, to me, the first kind of, the, there were other bands playing, but to me, the first four big bluegrass yeah. bands are Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, and Jim and Jesse. Did he, did he have any problem with you guys playing bluegrass? No, he never, he never. Never had any problem with us because we actually never did do uh, that many of his songs. We right. done we done songs of the the uh, Bales Brothers and uh, the Blue Sky Boys, and that was what we concentrated on more of the duet people, you know. When did you go away to serve in in Korea? In fifty uh, two. So was the band, so the band was already going and doing pretty good by this point, right? Yeah. That must have been hard to to stop the momentum. Oh yeah. And then go to go to Korea. Yeah, the thing about it, we was in Bristol at on the radio station there, and uh, and I just got married then, and uh, I got a a uh, letter from the draft board that I was delinquent in going in the army because they didn't know where I was at. I was moving so much. And they didn't have my address, so they had me had me in the army before I was in, even drafted. So uh, they gave me the date that I was supposed to be there. But after after I tried to tell them, I said I got I got a bad foot. But they they just, they just didn't hear what I said. They said yeah, I said you're in the army now. <laughs> so, so that's it. And what what did you? I mean, how do I put this? What did you do in Korea in the, in the army? I drove a jeep. You drove a jeep. I was actually uh, assigned to an infantry company, but I got transferred to the spatial services. I just happened to know a guy that uh, that he liked what I was doing. I was playing fiddle more or less over there, and uh, he got me transferred to spatial services on a temporary duty, which lasted for two years. So I stayed, stayed in Korea two years. And you brought your mandolin over? And your fiddle, or just your fiddle? I took the fiddle. Right. Because I, something I could carry. I even stuffed it in my duffel bag with all my clothes and still had room to, <laughs> to uh, go to Korea. So I took the fiddle with me. And I brought, I, I got a mandolin later to send over. I heard you played with Charlie Leuven over there. Yeah. Of the Leuven Brothers. Yeah. yeah this, how, how did that happen? Our, one of our uh, officers in the... Uh, Facial services. He asked me if I knew uh, uh, Charlie Leuven. I said, "Yeah, I, I know." He said, uh, "Well, he's he's fifty yards from you in the post office over here." <laughs> so he'd been there. We've been close together there for probably a month or, or two, and didn't even know it. And uh, so he started coming over and watching the movies and everything that we had in Spatial Services there. And when we got me and him and a couple of more boys who got a band together and started playing uh, NCO clubs, officers clubs and things, and just for how much, how much did they give us to drink? <laughs> so we got pretty high a few times. <laughs> Tell me about some of those gigs. What were those gigs like playing with, playing in Korea with Charlie Liu? I'm on my way.
It was just a volunteer thing for us. I mean, there wasn't, wasn't much business about it, but they gave us a, a car to travel in, or a van, really. And uh, we just booked these officers' clubs and things and hospitals, and that's what we played most of the time. But we, we sort of get in trouble sometimes on some of the songs we sang. Had to be careful not to put put the uh, the army down. In in words, it's amazing how those officers they would sit there and listen to all the words you were singing. You know, and if you sing this boy sang sang one one time, uh, the 45th Division in full retreat. He had a line in it somewhere that way, and this officer he, he just thought his fork down on his plate, just like this is it. <laughs> so the guy come up, he said, why don't you do one more song and that'll be it for you all. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you call it quits after that? <laughs> they, that officer didn't like that word about the, the 45th Division in full retreat. <laughs> oh, man, that, must been, that. that must have been cool, man. Like you and you and Charlie singing together. I can't, I can't imagine it. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, well, the thing about it in, is the... The band we had, Charlie tried to sing tenor with me, and uh, but he wasn't a tenor singer, that's for sure. And Ari was back here, him and Jim. Neither one of them was doing anything, really. So then you come back from Korea, and you start, you, do you pick up right where you, where you left off? Did you come back from Korea saying, okay, I'm just going to go back in Jim and Jesse and, and, and yeah, start we, again? Actually, we, we, we came back, I came back on furlough, and uh, we talked to Clyde Moody. He had a show in Danville, Danville, Virginia, and he was going to hire us when I got out of the army. And Jim called me and, and said, "Well, our deal is off with the Clyde Moody." So he decided not to fire the the other two people and hire me and Jim. So we went to uh, we went to Danville, Virginia, anyway, to work with Clyde for, on no pay or anything, just being there. So that's when I had to pawned my mandolin to get out of the hotel. Uh, what? We stayed in the hotel in Danville, and we got behind in a rent about two or three weeks, and and uh, me and Jim started to go back home after we quit working with Clyde, and uh, then I owed a hotel bill of two or three hundred dollars, I guess, and and I had to pawn my mandolin to the hotel manager so, I, so we could go home. <laughs> and that's one of the First bad times that we had when we, when I got out of the army. I hear it was pretty lean, lean then. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard to get any any pay. Uh, after we left Clyde, we went to work with uh, Glenn Thompson in south of Danville, Virginia, a radio station over there. And uh, Carl Story called us. He said, "I got you all the job in WNOX in Knoxville." For forty dollars a week, if you want to take take it for uh, doing one radio show a day, and paid the man forty dollars a week, that was as the first time we ever got paid for working at a radio station. Although it was it was small, but it was pretty good. Right, and finally you were making some making some money, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and we went there, and we stayed there about six months, I guess, and they started. Firing, firing people, and we was the newest band at there, so we, so we was the first one went. Why, did, why were they firing people? They thought they was going to build a recording studio. They built a big auditorium and everything out of town, Knoxville, and and, and then they found out they wasn't going to get the, their TV channel. So all that went down, so they had to start firing people, you know. We was one of the first bands at Dave Hard. And you were you were making records though, right around this time, were you? Yeah, we made uh we was making uh, for capital. And I think what blows my mind is from what I was reading, you guys would have to like take these records and give them to, to try to sell them yourself. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Try to sell them to jukeboxes, you know what I mean? Just trying to you guys were carting around these records. Well, we was trying to sell most of them on at shows, you know, yeah. just across the table. Yeah. And that's me and, me and Jim. We started our own record label. Uh, after we went through Capitol and Columbia and and then back to Capitol again. And they tried to tell us everything to do. 
tell us what songs we could do. And, and uh, what did they want you to do? They wanted you to do yeah, yeah, they, country songs, or they, they they wanted us to do whatever they decided uh, from the business end of Columbia. That they was supposedly doing it to try to get get us uh, to start them. I guess I don't know. Right. But uh, they get get us uh, some pretty bad songs sometimes. That I said, I hope this thing flops. Yeah. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just didn't, I just didn't didn't grasp the, the thing that we do everything that they tell us to do. What didn't you like about the songs that they were making you do? Well, one of them was about a uh, a teenage girl you're getting in trouble with, a honky tonk type songs. Right. And after a contract was up, we got a letter from. Uh, Epic Records was with then, and uh, they said, well, somebody slipped up somewhere and we let y'all's contract run out, so we'll send you a new contract. And I said, that's what we was waiting on, really. And uh, we said, we'll negotiate a new new deal with them. So we did negotiate a deal, a deal with them through our manager at that time, and uh, it was better than anybody else had ever got. And they said they would sign it. So we went down to sign it the next day and went in the guy's office that uh, was working for Epic. And he said, well, if I was you, all I'd tell Epic to go to hell. And he said, somebody has put a sprag in the whole deal and we don't have, a, we don't have the contract anymore. So that's when we, we decided to do our own label. Which which one of you was the business-minded one? Well, uh, Jim Jim did most of it, yeah. Yeah. I would suggest a lot of things, but it was hard to get your bigger brother to listen to you on some yeah. things, you know. <laughs> but I uh, I come up with uh, doing diesel on my tail with a strictly country, not not bluegrass anymore. Yeah. And uh, and he went along with it, so we had. A, we did a whole country band behind us yeah. when we did Diesel on My Tail. It was a big deal. Which was the biggest record we ever had. Huge record. There's a diesel on my tail making 90 miles an hour with my reflection in my mirror is mighty pale. I can hear St. Peter calling and I can almost smell the flowers. Can this compact take the impact? There's a diesel on my tail. And so when did that one come out? Uh, it was in the 60s sometime. It was after you joined the opera, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, what what was it like? What is? I mean, I'm an, I'm a younger brother, and to be honest, I love him with all my heart. But if I had to be in a van with my older brother for yeah, 14, I mean, 15 hours a day, I think we'd kill each other. Oh, there's a lot of fuss enough. Like, how did you how did you guys get along being in the in the van so much? I just I just let him handle it all, and if we get into argument over something, why, I'd go to the back of the bus. We'd just just stay away from each other until it went until it went away, you know. That's about how it happened. Yeah. So, so the, the record. So you guys just, you know, you you would be kind of smart enough <laughs> to, to say, you know what, I'll just I'll just stay out of this one. Well, yeah. Yeah. I just say, well, if we if we let it let it lie long enough, maybe it'll go away, and that's the way we operated pretty much. And when you guys chose the songs, did you choose them together? Did you? Yeah, we we usually uh, choose them choose them together. But he he would pick some songs that we would do, like he. Uh, He'd surprise me sometimes on things he'd do when we did Cotton Mill Man. It was unusual, the chord progression on it and everything. I didn't have a honeymoon, I couldn't leave my cotton moon. I swore my son would never be a cotton mill man. I watched my woman cry. He come up, he said, I think we ought to do this song. And if a song had more than three chords in it, he wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. But he worked out that song with all these crazy chords in it. He said, I think we ought to do this song. I said, that was a surprise. Lord, don't let my son grow up be a sweaty cotton mill man. I feel like before you joined the Opry, things started to work out. I feel like things started to get pretty good oh, before yeah. that. When, when, like, when do you say it was kind of the breakthrough that you know you, you felt comfortable? You felt like, okay, well, maybe I'm not, I'm not going to have to hawk my mandolin anytime soon. Well... It's hard, hard to me to figure out when we actually broke, broke through to where I felt comfortable in what we were doing, because we was having a hard time with our own record label. Because I, I found out there's more to this 
having a record label than just going in the studio and doing something. That's what that's basically what we were doing. We were a couple of country boys that didn't try to do that that much in the business world, and we get it get in with all these publishing, these publishing and these uh, management and these, there's so many things that that you don't think about until you get into it. So I never uh, I never figured that uh, that we got to where we were trying to get in in the music business. Although when we went to, first went to Nashville, we was a part of everything there. Every time we'd have a party or anything else, Jim and Jesse would be a part of it. And then uh, then all of a sudden, these other people started uh, coming in, and uh, I thought, well, I I was waiting for us to get the spot that Bill Monroe had on the Opry or something like that, but it never happened. The other people started coming in that uh, hadn't been in business half as long as we had, mm. and um, they'd have hit records and everything. And uh, I said, "Well, it looks like they're push, starting to push us aside." We went from doing uh, a song on every show on the Opry to one show a week. We still live with that, you know. I do, you know. Yeah. I just went when Jim passed away. I, I said, am I still part of the Opry? And they said, uh, yeah, we'll, you'll, we'll put you on for a couple of tunes a week, you know, something like that. You know? Yeah. But that, that cut down, down to one, one song and one show really a week. So I started losing it then right. after Jim passed away. Right. I was lucky to even even be there, you know. They, should, they could have took me off, you know. Right. But they, they were kind enough to, supposedly, I guess, but the way things work uh, work with it, it's hard to figure out. This, they change personnel uh, from the management of the Opry till you have to get acquainted with people over and over again yeah. and say, hey, I've been here, here for uh, uh, 55 years. I'm the oldest man on the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. And does that mean anything? You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I, I challenged the, the one, one time uh, last year sometime and I said, I, I just decided I don't think I'll go out and do anything tonight on the Alpine because I was getting tired of pushed around. Yeah. And uh, the guy said, what do you want to do? I said, all I want is go home. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I've had enough of this. Yeah. Being, well, it's, it's disrespectful, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was, the way I was looking at it. Right. Uh, how did you end up joining the Opry in the first place? Through Martha White. Yeah, we was in... Uh, Valdosta, Georgia, and uh, Jim was trying to get a deal with Pillsbury Company, and he was in Atlanta meeting with them, and A.O. Stinson from Martha White came to Valdosta and called me, and he said, uh, Martha White is looking for a, a band to sponsor on television in Georgia and Florida, and uh, he said, y'all must have been kin to the manager of the Opry, I mean, of the TV station, because of the way he talked about you. <laughs> so, uh, and he brought, brought the manager, Martha White, down there, and we had a meeting. And he said, well, if y'all let, let us sponsor you on, on TV, well, we'll, uh, we'll put you on the Opry when Flatten Scruggs is not there. Mm -hmm. So we was a part of the same thing that Flatten Scruggs was. Right. Working for Martha White, on uh, we had about uh, three or four TV shows a week in uh, Georgia and Florida. And that must have that must have I mean, things must have really exploded. Yeah, that that, that right? was that was when we actually got to break. Yeah. When we got with Martha White, that's what I always say. I say, thanks for Martha White, uh, us and Flat Scruggs and the Carter family and a lot of other people that. I can look back in history and and see how they got to the Grand Ole Opry right. through a sponsor. I, I feel like you guys were more risky in your material than a lot of other bluegrass bands of, of the time. Yeah, we, we were doing some crazy stuff. We were getting songs from Arthur Godfrey and uh, we had one called Last Cassis, Tennessee. Fifteen miles from nowhere How long to go there Take me back Take me back, back to Las Casas, Tennessee. That was a, a good thing in a, in a way. 
because it was came through Martha White and they decided they were going to have a show with Jim and Jesse in Las Casas, Tennessee, after we did the song. And we promoted the show and everything. But Las Casas is only a small community, you know, and uh, well, all the people from Martha White was there, and that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the public, the public didn't turn out too well. And uh, somebody from Martha White, one of the salesmen, come up and said, "Jim and Jesse uh, might be good and everything, but all the thing I'm, I'm, I'm interested in is how much flour can they sell?" <laughs> so we lost a deal from Martha White. They quit sponsoring us and put. Ernie Ford on to to do all their commercials for probably a million dollars, where we were only getting a thousand. <laughs> so I found out that's how the business world works when when they decide to uh, that you've had it. I mean, just you know, as fast as they'll take you, they'll they'll leave you. You know, yeah. That's something you learn in this industry pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We still uh, work with uh, Joe Taylor. He was our manager there for a long time, and he he took A.O. Stinson's place as our advertising manager for Martha White. So he still managed us and everything after even after we they quit sponsoring us, you know. But he, he was loyal. How did you How did you end up doing those Chuck Berry songs? Oh, uh, Billy Sherrill was a producer at uh, Epic Records, and uh, he was trying to find something for us to do that. Nobody else had ever done, and uh, he he came up with all the Chuck Berry albums. He we went down to his office one day and had a meeting with him, and he gave us a bunch of Chuck Berry albums, all the albums Chuck Berry had done, and wouldn't want to know if we thought we could do an album a tribute to Chuck Berry. And I didn't know that, uh, or we didn't know that. Uh, Somebody else had, had come to him asking me about doing an album on Flat and Scruggs of Chuck Berry songs. After we, we went to the studio and did, did our first session and then went on the Grand Ole Opry and said, we're doing a tribute to Chuck Berry. And this is one of the songs out of the albums and we did Memphis. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Anyway, Lester Earl heard this on the radio, and uh, somebody in their band, I think Paul Warren or somebody, said Flat and Scrud was planning on doing the same thing that Jim and Jesse had done. So Flat and Scruggs canceled their shows on the road and uh, booked a studio in Nashville and went in and done their version of Memphis with Rowan White playing harmonica on it and everything. And they jumped ahead of us. They thought we had heard they were going to do it. This is what Earl, I, I talked to Earl about it. And he, he thought that we heard that they were going to do that and we jumped ahead of them. And then, then we got a call from Epic Records they said, uh, Jim and Jesse's record can't come out just yet. Said Flatten Scruggs is going to come out with the same thing on the same label, which is Columbia and Epic Records. And, and we didn't know a thing about this. Yeah. And uh, I, I challenged Earl at the opera one time. I said, I want you to know that we didn't have anything to do with uh, us jumping in the head of y'all and doing this. And Earl said, he said, well, I know who's behind this. He said, Joe Taylor's the one I'm, I'm blaming, which was our manager. And uh, Joe Taylor called Epic. He said, well, if you don't come out with Jim and Jesse's record on uh, Memphis, he said, they'll never record for Epic Records again. We had a little power then that, that we used. So Epic Records decided they would put our record out on Epic Records and uh, Flatten Scruggs on Columbia at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then Bob Luman was doing it on the Opry with the country band. And gosh, I don't know how many other people was doing it. But yours was the big one. I mean, yours is the only one I know about. I mean, yeah. You, you, that, was, that was a big breakthrough record for Jim and Jesse, right? 
Yeah, yeah. We we ended up, I think, with the probably the best record on it, but nobody didn't sell anything to to actually brag about. But it's one of those things that uh, I I thought I'd get that straightened out with Earl by telling him we didn't know this was happening, mm -hmm. and but it, it it happened without anybody knowing exactly what was behind it, and I didn't want to push that much publicity on it, and there wasn't that much publicity about me and Earl and Lester coming out with, with the same song on the same label yeah. at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, did you ever hear from Chuck Beard? He wrote liner notes on it. Yeah, did you ever, did you ever talk to him? No, we were booked on him, booked on a show with him somewhere one time, and he didn't show up. He was, he was missing a lot of things back then. But uh, he did do some nice liner notes on it. That was just something they had to do, I guess. So, so after that, like I feel you, you mentioned that you kind of had this idea to go more country rather than just just bluegrass music. Yeah. So tell tell me about how you kind of came to that decision. Well, we just wasn't selling no records. Thing about it is, with with bluegrass, because bluegrass, we send a record to a radio station. It'd go in a garbage can right quick, you know, so uh, the Oak Ridge Boys had just, just left gospel and went to country at that time, and that's where I got the idea. I said, why don't we do that, you know, just go all country, put everything country. Did, but, it, feel, did it feel like a risk? Did it feel, was it, did you have to argue with Jim about it? Was it oh, a, yeah. yeah, yeah, Jim, Jim, that's, that's a little argument he had, uh, so he, he went along with me on that because we weren't, actually wasn't doing anything uh, in bluegrass on uh, selling records. But uh, blue, uh, the uh, Diesel on Mattel did get to number 11, I think, in Billboard. Um, it was country song. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's just thing we, we had to do. Our, fa our fan club people was trying to explain to people what was going on, and uh, we're in this business to make a living, and that's... That's how you do it. Okay, so, so your fan, I mean, you've had, you have one of the oldest fan clubs in, in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, your fan club and your fans were a little resistant. Your bluegrass fans were a little resistant. Yeah, but they, to, they were trying to explain what we were doing. Right. Yeah. And did you feel funny about it? Did you feel funny about maybe turning your back on bluegrass a little bit at that, at that moment? Yeah, I guess we, it's, that's a situation that you, you uh, wonder, are we doing the right thing or not, you know? Yeah. But then you get this big hit, right? Yeah. Yeah, we didn't get a hit record, but, we, but the only problem we had, we'd go out and play these nightclubs and things, and I'd play an electric guitar. And we'd do a country set, and our, another, our bluegrass lads were sitting there waiting. Said, when are we going to do some bluegrass? <laughs> <laughs> so we'd run into that. We, we were trying to please two audiences there. At the same time, while one, the bluegrass lads were sitting there and wait till we done our country thing. And... Uh, and then send people send notes up on stage and say, unplug that mandolin <laughs> or something, you know. When did you decide? Because I feel like you guys, as far as I've known, you went back to bluegrass. You didn't oh, stay yeah. with country. When did yes, you? That's when we started our own label. Right. What was that? Why? Why the decision to go back to bluegrass to stop playing country? Because that's what we wanted to do. Right. That was our music. Is music is bluegrass music, and oh, I like to do one of these. I'll beat things now and then just to say, let people know that I'm not die hard bluegrass. I mean, I like all kinds of music, you know. Mm -hmm. So just like some of the things we do, do at the opera sometimes, people look at me and I don't know if they if they like it or not, <laughs> but, but, but we do it anyway. How did you end up playing with the Doors? Oh, that was, uh, I went to uh, Virginia that's back when you'd get a phone call and the opera would come on and say, Hollywood's calling Jesse McReynolds. And that's what I got at my parents' home. And I said, now somebody's pulling my leg. That's what I thought it was. He said, this is Paul Rothschild. He said, I'm doing a record session in Hollywood, California, and we need a mandolin player on it. And I just hesitated. And uh, he finally convinced me that he was actually a record producer, you know. 
<laughs> he, he said enough that he, you believed that he was a record producer. Yeah, yeah because I, we had kidded each other a lot. Like we'd be driving a car down the road and a phone would ring or something and, and somebody would say, that's Hollywood calling. <laughs> and it actually happened. And he, he told me, he didn't tell me who he was playing. I didn't know who I was playing with until I got out there. Did you know who the Doors were? No. No. I'd heard heard their name maybe, but I didn't didn't know who they was till I got to California. So you fly to Los Angeles. Yeah. You go to the studio. Are they there? Well, the uh, part of them are. Was Jim there? Jim no, Morrison? Jim wasn't there. But Ray Manzarek might have been there. The keyboard player. The the bass player was. Uh, Robbie Krieger, I think. Some of the redheads guy. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. He met at the airport. Yeah. And uh, so what did, what did you think of the music? What, what, song, what song did you play on? Do you recall? Yeah, the Rolling Blue. Oh, hey, look at my shoes. Not quite the walking blues. Don't fight so much to lose. Can't fight the running blues. And what did, you, what did you make of it? I thought, what have I got into? <laughs> you know, I had Jim Buchanan playing fiddle with me. And, and they wanted a fiddle player. Like me and Jim went out there. And... We spent, I guess, six hours in the studio doing one song, and uh, I thought, I hope this is all of it. But uh, I didn't hear it till I got in the studio, and he, they turned turned the record on, and I thought, what am I going to do on this? <laughs> but uh, they had a place in it where I, I, I didn't play, play my cross picking thing. I, I I used to call him every time I'd go through through. Uh, Los Angeles there, and I said, how's the record doing? They put a single out on it, Run Blue, and he said, well, it sold a million. I said, well, why are my checks, <laughs> checks are small? <laughs> I thought I thought, I didn't say it. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like the, the counterculture loved Jim and Jesse. Like, it wasn't surprising to me that you've already told these stories about Garcia and about Jim Morrison. I feel yeah. like they love Jim and Jesse. I, I wish I'd have met, met Jim uh, in a way, and in a way maybe maybe it's better that, that I didn't meet Jim Morrison. <laughs> I don't know. I, I trust some movie, movies about him and everything. Yeah. Like Chuck Berry thing. I mean, I, I was hoping we'd... The only thing I dread about, I uh, hate about the Chuck Berry thing that we didn't get him to play on it. Right. But that was back... Right in the middle of all this racial thing, and we was living in Prattville, Alabama, yeah. which is right outside of Montgomery. They was marching in front of our house and everything, and they was the racial thing was pretty bad back then. That's when they burning churches and and everything down there, and we was living right in the middle of that and doing Chuck Berry songs. Yeah, <laughs> so wow, we got yeah. a lot of comment about that. Did you, Did you really? Oh yeah, from from quite a few people. Yeah. What, what did you what, what did you think well, when they, they were talking? I just wonder what what. What, what are we trying to do, uh, fighting the racial thing, and, and uh, with all the racial stuff going on, then, and we, we was trying to promote Chuck Berry songs, you know. What'd you say? Well, I didn't see nothing wrong with it myself. No. I said, it's his musical thing, and it's, uh, it shouldn't have had anything to do with it, but, mm -hmm. but it did with some people, you know. Yeah, I bet. So then from, so like, uh, you, you've been amazing. We've already talked for about an hour, which is about all I had with you. But I feel like you and you and Jim just continued on to have a pretty amazing career playing bluegrass, playing festivals. Yeah. We, you, you must look back on it fondly. Well, we we had a lot of ups, ups and downs in it, that's for sure. I mean, it's not, not been all, all glory. I mean, that we got what we wanted to do. We, I mean, there's always uh, something in your career that you feel is something holding you back yet, you know. I was trying to see all these other country stars come up and have a number one record, the first thing they do, you know. This, then I, now there was us out there having the band and carrying it and, and traveling all over the, all over the world, really, uh, trying to promote, promote our music. and. The closest we ever got to a hit record was number 11 with Diesel on my tail, which I, I hated the song anyway. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, I, I, told, him, I told him that. I said, before we, before we recorded the song, I said, in the first place, I don't like this song. 
And if it made a hit, okay. If it didn't, it didn't bother me, no. So we go on to do something else. Yeah, but then it did, right? It did. It did really yeah, well for yeah, you. Yeah, it was. That's what Bill Sherrill called me. He said we got to put out an album of uh, Diesel on Mattel songs. You know, that's the reason I put Tijuana Taxi on it. He wanted, why'd he put that on there for, you know? I, I was a Herb Albert fan, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you guys, you were willing to do anything, man. Like, I feel like you, your, your genre, you were into playing different genres of music more than anyone of that era I can yeah. find. Like Latin music, you know, rock music, you know, country music, jazz. I feel like you, 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 you kind of didn't care as long yeah, as it was good. Yeah, I right? just, uh, I, I'm still that way. I, 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 I'm working on stuff now that I've never done before. In fact, I'm trying to do Zolber the Greek. Yeah. You but, know you know that song, Zolber? No. Oh. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> I want to, I'm going to drop, I want to just have a couple of last questions for you before we, before we let you go. And you've been really great, man. And thanks for talking about all this. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm going to say a couple of names. Uh, can you tell me something about Bobby Thompson? Oh, Bobby was a great, great musician, a great banjo player. He, he was, in fact, he was a, uh, one of the most uh, unique banjo players, I guess, as far as coming up with different styles. What do, what do you remember about him? Well, he was, he was a, just an innovator of the type of music he was playing. Not only he played banjo, he, like Earl Scruggs style, well, he, he, he could play anything, really. How about Vassar? Oh, Vassar was a, he was a case. <laughs> Yeah, if uh, I could take a take a, a a cheese cheese sandwich and run him out like run him out of the restaurant, really, he he'd get a sandwich sometimes. I said, Vassar, this got cheese on it." He said, "What?" He said, "It's got it's got cheese on that sandwich. You better look at it." And he'd throw it away. What? Why? He just didn't like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, did you know he was so great when he was playing with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd heard him, heard him for. What was funny about, about Vassar, he lived about 10 miles from me in Valdosta, Georgia, and I didn't even know it. He'd quit playing for a while. He was working in a cotton mill in, uh, in Valdosta, Georgia, or right outside of Valdosta. And uh, he come up, come out to one of his shows one time and was playing backstage. And uh, I found out he was living within five or six miles from me. And uh, so I I got him to uh, come over and play with me a couple of times. And and we and he, he decided he wanted to play again because he'd, he'd quit playing there for a while. What, what, what Jim and Jesse song are you the most proud of? I guess uh, I'd have to say Diesel on my tail, I guess. But Even though you don't love it. I don't love it. I, I don't even know it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still play the mandolin every day? Well, I try to, but actually I had my uh, surgery two years ago. I, I've lost it a lot. Yeah. I mean, you... you I, and... I, don't, I don't do... My cross-picking has slowed down quite a bit. Right. I can do a little of it, but not, not very much. I hear it on the Opry sometimes. It sounds great to me, man. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds good. Well, I... I'm, I'm glad it sounds good to somebody. <laughs> can, can we? T- I, I only talk about this as much as you want, but you know, you, I think you, you and Jim got diagnosed with cancer in the same year. Is that right? Yeah, I had. Uh, uh, he he had throat cancer. That's what killed him. And uh, I can't even remember what I had. What did I have? Prostate cancer. Huh? Was it prostate, prostate cancer? cancer. Yeah, prostate. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's what it was. There was this. Really, really kind of powerful moment I saw, or I, I was reading about, yeah. of yours and Jim's last performance on the Opry, and and Jim couldn't sing, right? Oh yeah, he was sitting down. Yeah, he sat down the last uh, last year. He played. He played with me some. The last time he went to the Opry, we took took him down on the bus, and he walked out of the bus and started going to the Opry, and uh, he just turned around and went back to the bus, and that was his last time. To, to play the opera. So when Jim passed, 
And I'm sorry, I'm sorry for your loss. Mm-hmm. How did you know to go on? Well, I just, I just followed my, uh, my instincts, I guess, and I just wanted to play. I mean, I figured, well, if was, this was turned around and Jim uh, was uh, left to do it himself, would he do it, you know? I said, he, I thought he probably would, you know. Was it, was it hard to, to start again, or was it hard to keep going afterwards? Well, in a way it was. The, the hardest part was the business end of it, because he did all the business. He took care of everything. And, and I was part of the band. I just wanted to stay with the band all the time and play with them. And I, I took, tried to take care of the music, and although I come up with some crazy things sometimes, <laughs> and he, he would say so too. He said some of the crazy things you come up with. <laughs> He said, I don't know why we, why we do that. You know, like Tijuana Taxi, that's out of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are, you, are, you, are you heartened then by, I mean, I mean, just kind of, there's three kind of young people here who are watching kind of every word. And out of the corner of my eye, I've been seeing them kind of like jumping up and down and, and, and you know, bending over laughing. And you can tell they have such a joy to kind of be in your presence and to, and to play the kind of music they can play with you. Are you are, does, is, is that meaningful to you, that there are so oh, many yeah. young people who your, yeah, your music it, means so much to? It's meaningful to me that uh, everybody is, is happy and happy working for me as they, they would anybody. Yeah. You know, like, I want, I want everybody to think, well, I'm part of this, what, what we're doing. I mean... And I'm just happy to be a part of it, you know. I would think everybody uh, should look at it that way, you know. I'd hope it's so anyway. And how do you feel about the future of this music? I mean, you're one of the you're one of the fathers. You're one of the architects of this music. How do you feel about it going ahead? Well, I, I think I wish I could stay longer, <laughs> but but uh, I just turned turned ninety, and uh, not many people live to be that long, you know. But I'm just thankful that. I've made it this far and, and still able to to do what I'm doing, especially at being a member of the Grand Ole Opry. That's the reason I keep reminding them as much as I can that, that hey, I'm the oldest man here. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're, you're the senior man. Yeah. yeah. I, love, I love hearing you on the Opry because I feel like it's the... It's the link, you know, to what the opera is. You know, Tristan, my, my friend Tristan, who's here with me, he said something really interesting the other day. I hope you don't mind me quoting you. But he said, I said, why did you move to Nashville? And he said, well, I moved to Nashville because I wanted to be close. I don't mean to misquote you, but I kind of want to be the close to the center of where of everything I care about, of everything I love, of everything that kind of draws me. And when I hear you on the opera, which I do, it feels like the, it feels, it feels like the link to that time. Well, I appreciate it. I, I wonder sometimes what's going on at the... Uh, the thinking of the people who come to the Opry. I mean, I go out there, me and Jim played for 55 years together. And uh, we'd, we'd get regular applause for something. And I go out there by myself, obviously because of my age or, or what, I get a standing ovation. I mean, <laughs> I said, what's going on? <laughs> I had, had, Live to be 90 years old to get a standing ovation. <laughs> but seeing that way sometimes. Well, man, listen, I, I, I can't thank you enough for sitting down and t- telling me these stories today. I hope I didn't flub it too much. No, you sounded great, I, man. I'm, I'm just a country boy, not an MC. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Well, thank you, man. I, I, I really it. do appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Darling, will you marry me? I ask a man to fire. I turn my back upon her when I looked. She wasn't there. She left me standing, standing on the mountain. She left me standing way up there. And there you have it. There's my conversation with Jesse McReynolds. I got to tell you, when we were starting this podcast, I was so excited about talking to someone like him. You know, there's not many people who were around for the formation of this music, this music that means so much to my life. And I'm judging by the fact that you're listening to this so much to yours. You know, I, I think we all owe Jesse McReynolds a debt of gratitude. And it was just so nice at the end to say, hey, thanks. <laughs> you know, hey, nice to meet you. And um, uh, what a joy it was. It's a, It's a... I, you know, I don't use this word very much, but it was a real honor to get a chance to talk to Jesse McReynolds. And afterwards, Tristan Scroggins, my buddy who I was there with, I mentioned in the intro, he's a great mandolin player and a great Jesse McReynolds style mandolin player. So he got to pick a couple of tunes on Jesse's mandolin in the McReynolds style. 
And I feel like you saw Jesse in this moment just know that his music was going to be okay. Know that people care about it and know that he's influenced generations of musicians. It was uh, it was really meaningful. And I actually managed to record some of it. It's on our Instagram, at Toy Heart Podcast. I have the videos up there. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty beautiful moment. Two weeks from now on the show, my conversation with Tony Trishka, you know, another formative musician. You heard Bela Fleck talk about how he wouldn't be playing the banjo the way he did if it wasn't for Tony Trishka. And I think for anyone who plays sort of left field bluegrass music, They owe a debt of gratitude to the work that Tony did in New York in the 1970s. So we're going to dig into that. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs with help, as always, from the entire BGS team. There's Chris Jacobs, Justin Hiltner, Craig Shelburne, all the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots culture redefined. You can discover more at the Bluegrass Situation Dot com. Uh, thanks again to Karina Rose Logston and Jeremy Stevens for helping to coordinate and facilitate that interview with Jesse. Thanks a lot to Mike Scott for opening up his place uh, and for the delicious coffee. The show is mixed by Mike Laval and Stephanie Coleman. The transcription is done by Rob McLaren. Our theme song, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, is performed by Kristen Andreessen and Chris Critter Eldridge. Kristen is an amazing songwriter in her own right. Critter is a hot band, kind of the Jim and Jesse of their time, called the Punch Brothers. You can like and subscribe and find us on Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast. We'll see you in two weeks for the great Tony Trishka. Take care. Later on. <laughs>